You may be seated. Father, we pray again that you be present here with us by the Holy Spirit so that Christ might be magnified and help us understand these concepts well, Lord God, that, that we might see the biblical theological realities therein and so that we might um, live a life, Lord God, that is pleasing to you. Help us focus now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have left off um, last session talking about the function of miracles. We took, we took a look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. We're going to continue right where we left off from there and start to talk about those texts in Scripture that seemingly talk about a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, If it's true that um, Pentecost is a once-for-all event that um, couldn't be repeated and isn't something that you should endeavor to get or attain or to be repeatable in your life, then why did it seem that in the book of Acts itself, there are people who have been baptized in the name of John, baptized in the name of Jesus even, but then the text seems to say they were not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit. So is there a distinct baptism from the water baptism? So at first you became a Christian, and then suddenly you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, how should we understand these kind of passages? Okay. Um, let me just read the passages out there so that they kind of receive the full force of their weight because these are the passages that people would appeal to to argue that there are two baptisms that every Christian ought to experience. First is the water baptism at your conversion or something like that. And then second is a baptism by the Holy Spirit where you are confirmed or, or you get an extra spiritual gift or something like that. And these are the two texts from the book of Acts. There's one more, but we don't have time to cover, I think, all three. But I think these are the two more powerful texts from the book of Acts itself that seemingly teaches a two-step baptism or a two-baptism understanding of Pentecost or application of Pentecost, okay? Now, Acts 8, verses 14 to 17 says this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Just notice really quickly the fact that Peter and John had a unique authority and a unique apostolic ministry that the church sent Peter and John specifically to Samaria, right? Just as a side note, just note that. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice, these people in Samaria had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but yet somehow have not yet experienced the Pentecost um, experience, this baptism or this receiving of the Holy Spirit. So notice that, Acts 8, 14 to 17. Then they laid their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then have you, were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, I'm going to presuppose everything that was already said in session two. All right, remember that Pentecost has a once-for-all 
history of salvation event. It is not to be repeated. That's what I argued for. And therefore distinguishable from the order of salvation, which is the application of the history of salvation to individual believers. Um, the order of salvation confers the benefits that, are, um, that have already taken place in the history of redemption and salvation, right? And therefore, I argued that the apostles had a unique role in that. Um, through the Q&A, I hope it has become clear that the apostles were a foundational witness. Um, test, uh, they, were, they, were, they were foundationally witnessing to Jesus Christ. If the prophets anticipated Christ Jesus' coming, anticipated that coming, predicted that coming, the apostles looked back onto the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and interpreted that for us so that we have the New Testament. So the apostolic ministry is a foundational ministry that couldn't be repeated, Ephesians 2.20. It's one foundation with the prophets that in such a way that just as there are no more prophets today, there are also no more apostles today because their ministry was uniquely tethered to redemptive history and with the completion of the New Testament, no longer um, serve a purpose. So that's, that's a foundational um, claim and, and there's a foundational role to the, to the prophets and the apostles, okay? And therefore, the Acts of the Apostles, the whole book of Acts, is outlining what the apostles did with this new message of Christ, what the apostles did after they've received the Holy Spirit, how they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then they were to spread that, that message of the gospel to every tongue, nation, and tribe, right? Which fulfills... So disciple-making through the apostles, um, the product is the church, is fulfilling what I argued was the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve, okay? So that the whole world would be subdued by image bearers of God, worshiping God and glorifying God together, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, having access to the word of God and confessing it together. So that's what the apostles were supposed to do. So I'm not just making that up. Let's look at the thesis statement of the book of Acts, okay? that I think would help us understand and read Acts 8 and Acts 19. The thesis statement of the book of Acts, I would argue, is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's not in the PowerPoint, so look there with me. It would just be helpful for your memory, I think, to just see this for yourself. What is the book of Acts supposed to be recording? Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the book of Luke. There are actually two volumes of one work. So what is the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit? What is it supposed to be recording? Well, Acts 1.8 tells us, um, this is Jesus talking to the disciples, but you, this is predicting the Pentecost that will happen in chapter 2, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Just notice that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, if you're reading through the book of Acts, what do you see? You see amazing examples of power being manifested by the apostles, right? They were beaten, they were threatened, they were persecuted, they were doing miracles, and they, were, they, they continued, they persevered. Paul was shipwrecked multiple times, right, throughout the book of Acts. So what, 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 what is Luke recording there? The power of the apostles as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. And what's the purpose of that power of the apostles? That they shall be witnessing in Jerusalem. Notice Jerusalem. Right? First, right? It comes first. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's this progression of beginning in Jerusalem 
the apostles would be sent out by the Holy Spirit, and then to all of Judea, and then Samaria. And Samaria is a progression as well. well. Who are the Samaritans? They were mudbloods, right? They were, they were, they were half Jewish, half Gentile. They were, they were a mixture, a, a, a different race, but also a mixture of Jewish and a different race, right? So considered impure by the Jewish. But Jesus is saying when the Spirit comes upon you, you will go to Samaria. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll go to the end of the earth. Notice that movement of Jerusalem, Judea, which is surrounding Jerusalem, and then Samaria, which is Mugbloods, and then Gentiles, which is the rest of the world, which is like the, the quote-unquote impure considered in the Old Testament, right? The unclean. So Jesus is saying the power of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose of spreading the gospel first to Jerusalem and then outwardly from there to the rest of the nations, right? Remember Isaiah 2, the word of God will come from Jerusalem. So it began at Jerusalem and it will spread out from there, okay? That's the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, therefore, here's what I want us to see. When Pentecost happened, remember I talked about how Pentecost was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as a prophetic fulfillment, right? Isaiah 2, Joel 2, as we saw, predicted a time where the Spirit will be poured out onto all people of all nations. And Pentecost was the first instantiation of that. That's why it's an epoch-shifting event. There were people from all sorts of different nations, but suddenly they were speaking in each other's languages, understanding one another, right? That's what Pentecost was. But remember I said that there was a tension because other people doubted too. You saw that? Other people thought they were crazy. So in other words, even though Pentecost was poured out among a specific group of people in Jerusalem at a specific moment, there was still work to do. The disciples and the apostles had to go out and actually take this gospel message out to Samaria and the rest of the world, okay? Now, look at what is interesting at the very beginning of all of these passages, and the other passage that I didn't mention is the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10. We don't have time to talk about that, but all of the passages that talk about this quote-unquote of new receiving of the Holy Spirit after your baptism are always to people who had already been converted to Christianity or already God-fearing Gentiles who were somehow baptized through John or baptized in the name of Jesus, but were living in a different area outside of Jerusalem. And so when Pentecost happened, they were outside of the realm of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So what are the apostles supposed to do? The apostles are supposed to take, the, the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take that same message that they received in Jerusalem and go out to these places so that they too might receive what Christians later on will receive in one moment. Where we receive in one moment baptism and the Holy Spirit. People who lived in that era who were already Christians, so to speak, before Pentecost had to be applied the Pentecostal benefit in a, in, in a step after their initial conversion. Okay, let me, let me, this is going to get clearer, okay? But just notice this. Acts 8, 14 to 17. Notice how it was introducing this narrative. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, notice that, Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. When you see that, what do you immediately think of? Acts 1, 8. From Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were sent to, to tell the gospel to Samaria, right? This is exactly going according to plan. 
who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Second passage, Acts 19, let's read it again. And when it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Gentile city, non-Jewish city, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, Gentile city, non-Jewish city. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit where you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So notice what's going on here, right? Pentecost had happened in Jerusalem, and Jesus had already predicted that whatever you're going to receive in Jerusalem, apostles, you will go out by the power of the Holy Spirit and bestow this gifting that you were just given by the message of the gospel. So what's going on throughout the book of Acts is that story, that story of how the Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, and they had to go through the ends of the earth. And that's why Paul ended up in Rome. Rome was considered this, the center of the end of the world in, in, that, in, that, in that ancient time, right? So you, you see the apostles seeping through all the different cities and the gospel infiltrating all these different cities. But what we need to consider is that those who had already been baptized in the name of John or Jesus at the time and who were not in Jerusalem received the Holy Spirit and in, in, in the benefit of Pentecost, therefore, after the, the first outpouring in Jerusalem, okay? Now, let me, let me read um, Abraham Kuyper, and then we'll go to Ferguson. And, and, and in the slides, Kuyper is after Ferguson, but you got it. So let me, read, let me read a quote by Abraham Kuyper, which gives a very vivid imagery of this, which I think would be helpful for us. Okay? How should we understand this kind of... It's, Pentecost is one event, but like applied in two different phases to the lives of the believers who are already believers at the time of Pentecost. How should we understand this? What kind of image would help us understand this? Suppose that a city whose citizen for ages have been drinking each from his own cistern, cistern just like a well, right, proposes to construct a reservoir that will supply every home. When the work is completed, the water is allowed to run through the system of mains and pipes into every house. Suppose the city above referred to consisted of a lower and an upper part, both to be supplied by the same reservoir. The distribution of the water took place but once, Pentecost, which was the formal opening of the waterworks and could take place but once. While the distribution of the water in the upper city, although extraordinary, was but an after effect of the former event. He's talking about um, the application there. On Pentecost, he, the spirit, is poured out into the body, but only to quench the thirst of one part, i.e. the Jewish, Jerusalem. Hence, there is an original outpouring in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and a supplementary outpouring in Caesarea for the Gentile part of the church, um, both of the same nature, but each bearing its own special character. Besides these, there were some isolated outpourings of the Holy Spirit attended on by the laying on of the apostles' hands. From time to time, new connections are made between individual houses and the city reservoir. So new parts of the body of Christ were added to the church from without into whom the Holy Spirit was poured forth from the body as into new members. Okay, so here's what Kuiper is saying, okay? His analogy, I think, is incredibly helpful, and it hopefully will, will help us make sense of what's going on in the book of Acts, okay? Kuiper is saying, imagine that each believer was like a house, 
and they were drinking from the from one well. This is this is an imperfect analogy, as all analogies break down. So he says, houses. I'm a terrible artist. Have a cistern like a well, right? And there are a lot of houses, and they all have a lot of houses. I mean, there are a lot of cisterns, all right? Now, this was, um, quote unquote, the old covenant, right? It was a former technology. People depended upon wells when they didn't have pipes and a reservoir. You see what I mean? They had their own wells. Now, what happens for Kuiper is that Pentecost is like the opening up of a water reservoir. Let's just draw a, a, a circle right here. A water reservoir in the upper part of the city, okay? Now, when this water reservoir opened, it was a once-for-all event. There's no more other water reservoirs that needed to be opened. That's what Kuiper is saying. Now, those who enjoyed, who lived closer to the water well, enjoyed an initial connection to the water reservoir, sorry, right? What needed to happen for those houses that were already built with cisterns is a connection between those houses to the water reservoir. There needed to be a new pathway from that water reservoir to all the other houses, those houses that were already built with a cistern. Does that make sense? Such that when Paul or the other disciples went to Caesarea or Corinth or Ephesus or Samaria, they had to connect these houses that were living in cisterns to the main water reservoir, namely Pentecost. Now, however, what Kuiper is also saying is, every other house in the future didn't need this two-step approach. They didn't need to have a cistern first and then have a pipeway lined up to the water reservoir. You see what I mean? Every other house, henceforth, because of the new technology, needed to, um, I'm sorry, automatically had a pipe to it. There was no need to connect the cistern to the water reservoir. Does that make sense? Every other house from that century on, after the water reservoir, simply had a plumbing system that didn't, that just bypassed the cistern. You see what I mean? So if you were baptized already, and, and you're living in the time of Christ, and then you witness his death and resurrection, and his ascension, and then Pentecost, you heard about this, this spirit thing in, Pente in, in Pentecost in Jerusalem, you, you were wondering what's going on there, and then the apostles came to you and applied Pentecost to you, okay? But every other disciple or Christian after that didn't need the two-step approach. Like, if you weren't baptized yet, they wouldn't say, well, baptize, be baptized first in the name of Jesus, and then we'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit, what does Jesus say? Be baptized in the Father, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Then he said that at the Great Commission after the resurrection. Okay? So, let me say that again. If you were a Christian who was baptized before Pentecost, you needed Pentecost to be applied to you afterwards, and you were living outside of the area of Jerusalem. You see what I mean? But if you're a Christian after Pentecost... There wasn't a two-step approach for you. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism of regeneration, baptism of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one baptism. Does that make sense? That's what Abraham Kuyper was saying. And here's another graphic analogy. This is admittedly a little bit speculative, but it's also grounded in history, in redemptive history, okay? Abraham and Moses was given the command to circumcise all the male children. 
Notice I'm always making connections between circumcision and baptism. That's why we baptize babies. But anyway, notice that Abraham was given the commission, and Moses was too, to circumcise all the male children. Okay, And they were, they, were, they were told to circumcise on the eighth day. Remember that? In the Old Covenant. Circumcise them on the eighth day. Now, what if Moses went after he crossed the Red Sea, said things, okay, I gotta, I gotta circumcise people now. There were not only infants, but also adults. So some adults were circumcised as adults, and other infants who were infants at the time were also circumcised. But every other believer after that, right, they weren't circumcised as adults, they were circumcised on the eighth day. You see what I mean? The commandment of circumcision happened once, and during the, the moment it happened, during the, when the command was given to circumcise, and there were other adults laying around, like Abraham was an adult, right? He needed to get circumcised as an adult. And then children get circumcised too. But then every other believer after that command, who were, were born into the Abrahamic family, Abrahamic covenant, we're circumcised on the eighth day. They don't, get, they don't wait until the age of Abraham, until they get to adulthood, and they get circumcised because Abraham was like 90 when he got circumcised or something. Right? They don't wait until the, they get to 90 years old. They, they wait until the eighth day as commanded. You see what I mean? So Jesus says, be baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pentecost happens, so people were getting baptized once. But there happened to be people who lived among that time outside of Jerusalem who were already baptized but needed to be applied the benefits of Pentecost. Okay? That's what Kyber is saying, and it, it applies to circumcision, applied in the New Covenant with baptism. Let me just pause there, because I really want us to get this before we move on. We have time. Is that clear for everyone? I gave very two graphic analogies. Okay, yep. David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's just say that this was Jerusalem or something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, through through the apostles, the channel the channel lines would would be the apostolic ministry at that point, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the first two counties are not just the apostles. Um, people in Jerusalem, not just apostles. People in Jerusalem. I think the channels are like the apostles. Yeah, yeah. So people in Jerusalem experienced the outpouring of the water reservoir first, right? And then those who had cisterns they got connected in a second phase, right? But any future houses that were converted or made later um, didn't need a cistern first and then a water reservoir connection. They simply had the water reservoir connection, the pipes. That's the analogy there. Okay, Mike? So I kind of get the analogy, but yeah.
the, the only Pentecost. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. When the Pentecost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think there's definitely a church aspect to it. They were connected. That's why we're Presbyterians, which is a beautiful argument for Presbyterianism, just as a side note. But it's a, it's, it's, so there's, there's all this connectedness, right? There was never supposed to be an independent church just doing its own thing. There was all this connectedness to a, to a general assembly, Acts 15, and, and so forth. So it's, it's, um, I think there's definitely an ecclesiological aspect. But I think it's also telling them more. So there's the, the, the knowledge aspect, too, that you're talking about. But also this courage and boldness, precisely because of what you know. Precisely because they know more now about the ministry of Jesus. They were given this, this new courage and boldness out of that knowledge. He was raised from the dead. He was ascended. He was, he's sitting on the right hand of the Father. Um, which is that, that language of sitting on the right hand of the Father is used in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and Peter's sermons. So, it's, 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 yes, it's churchly. Yes, it's knowledge. But it's also a supernatural courage because of that knowledge and because of that connection with the church. Does that make sense? Yeah. When they first believed in Christ and they participated in John's baptism, mm-hmm. was it also the work of the Holy Spirit? Maybe just the first time uh, Yeah, I think it would be it would be something like the old covenant, right? I mean, um Gentiles were baptized if they wanted to become part of Jerusalem and Israel in the old covenant, right? Uh, and also the Holy Spirit was part of that process. The Holy Spirit was part of was was very much involved in the obedience of Israel, right? Definitely, but it's it's an old covenant spiritual indwelling, not a new covenant spiritual indwelling. And the difference between the two, as we mentioned already before, is that the new covenant spirit indwelling gave a new courage because it's the spirit of the Lord ascended Christ with his new intercessory ministry. Does it make sense? Okay. Good. All right. Let's, let's move on. Let me just read one more quote that hopefully would solidify this in your memory. If you come away from this retreat thinking about the games, then we have failed. No, I'm kidding. Um, I hope you're, you're coming away like, whoa, Pentecost. Okay. But anyway, um, here's Sinclair Ferguson again talking about this, this, this unique experience where there, was, there were already believers that lived before Pentecost and had to... Um, received the Holy Spirit because of Pentecost. Ferguson said, it is not possible to argue that the disciples' experience is paradigmatic for the church or the experience of those who were there before and after Pentecost for the obvious reason that they uniquely span the period of transition from old to new covenant faith. So what's Sinclair Ferguson saying there? So there's, there's creation, right? Fall. And redemption there is uh, divided into Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, and then consummation, right? What he's saying there is that these disciples uniquely transitioned with, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. 
they, they were uniquely, their lifespans were uniquely within that time period, you see. Just as those, the first generation of the Exodus were uniquely in that time period witnessing the Exodus. And then the second and the third generation who didn't witness the Exodus had to be told about the Exodus again and again. You see what I mean? In the same way, he's saying that the disciples' experience during Pentecost, where they were already baptized and before Pentecost, received the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, is a unique experience for them because they were living in this transitory phase. They uniquely experienced the phase in redemptive history. Does that make sense? But every believer afterwards don't, quote-unquote, don't need that transition, right? We, we immediately get one baptism. So it is not possible to argue that the disciples' experience is paradigmatic for the church for the obvious reason that they uniquely span the period of transition from old to new covenant faith. Their experience is epoch-crossing and consequently atypical and non-paradigmatic in nature. Think Historia Salutis. They were living through the history of salvation and the transition from one period of the history of salvation to another period of the history of salvation. Unrepeatable experience. By necessity, their entry into the full measure or old covenant spiritual work, new covenant spiritual ministry work, by necessity, their entry into the full measure of the Spirit's ministry took place in two distinct stages, reflecting a pattern of continuity, the Spirit that is poured out in Pentecost is the same Spirit in the Old Covenant, and discontinuity. Only at Pentecost does He come in His capacity and ministry as the Spirit of the exalted Christ. What was necessarily affected in the Apostles' experience in two stages because of the very nature of redemptive history now becomes a unified reality in the experience of later believers. The perspective of the New Testament, therefore, is not that Pentecost or the Acts as a whole provides us with a two-stage paradigm for personal experience of the Holy Spirit, but rather, at the point of faith, we participate individually in the effect of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Okay, Two verses I want to point out in the book of Ephesians that I think completely uh, negates this idea of a two-stage spiritual life. Two passages in Ephesians, so please turn there with me. This is not in your slides, but it is the, the, the heading is in your notes. Ephesians 1, 3, and Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Here's what Ephesians 1, 3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You were not given just a part of the spiritual blessing. You were given the whole. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It's all yours. There is no sense in which some parts are yours and other parts will, will be yours if you do the second step or something like that, right? You would get every spiritual blessing because Christ's work was complete. If you say that you only get a little bit from Christ and then the second part is not from Christ, then you're, you're, you're in trouble. And then why is there only one baptism? Well, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Look at what it says. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body, one church, one spirit, 
one Holy Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Clear as day, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? So notice one spirit, one body, one hope, one message, one baptism, such that what these believers who lived through Pentecost experience was really one baptism in two phases because they uniquely lived in that period, whereas those of us who lived after Pentecost simply get the baptism of conversion in the spirit, and it's really conversion in the spirit are it's one thing. Okay. Hope that's extra clear. One baptism, every spiritual blessing in Christ. So if you want to create a CCC Instagram hashtag, one baptism, you're good. Yeah. Uh, by the way, as we're going to head to the games, it's a little bit scary to me how competitive we are. Just remember that. One baptism, one body. Okay, don't, don't, don't kill one another. My goodness. I was looking at the WhatsApp groups. I'm like, these guys are... It's like 2 in the morning and their messages. Like, these are staying up for these things, all right? So let me then go to the proper material of session 4, uh, session 3, sorry. And we have time until 3 o'clock. And I will try to cover all this in 35 minutes so we have time for Q&A. And I think we can. I purposely made the Pentecost session a lot more dense, okay? So we want to now talk about not the history of salvation, but the order of salvation. How does the Spirit apply salvation into your life? We're not talking about redemption accomplished, what happened in Pentecost, the ascension of Christ, and so on. We're talking about redemption applied. Redemption accomplished, history of salvation, redemption applied, order of salvation. All right? So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and salvation. What is the Spirit's role in the individual salvation? That's what we're going to ask asking the question. What is the Holy Spirit's role in your salvation and conversion? What happened to you in conversion? And we're going to talk about this word regeneration, which we touched upon a little bit in the last session. Three headings, like a good CCC sermon, the necessity of regeneration, what is regeneration, and the signs of spirit-wrought regeneration, which will bleed into the fourth session, which talks about the spirit and sanctification. All right? So, the necessity of regeneration. We're going to talk about more about what is regeneration in the second point, but we want to get clear on the necessity of regeneration very clearly. Regeneration for now just simply means being born again. We can, we can put a familiar Christian lingo to that. Being born again. Why do we need to be born again? Okay. Clear text in this is John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Just turn there with me now. We're going to look at this text for a few minutes. I purposely didn't put it in the slides so that you would take out your Bibles. Okay, that's supposed to be a joke and sort of, it's semi-serious. Um, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. This is a key text about the work of the Holy Spirit and why it's necessary, the necessity of regeneration. So, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you're 
looking at the ESV, there's a little footnote there that born again could also be translated as born from above, born from the heavenly. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with him who is born of the Holy Spirit. Let me just note a few things there, okay? So that we're clear about why it's necessary to be born again. What are the features there of being born again, okay? The necessity of being born again. Notice who Jesus is talking to when he says that that person needs to be born again. Some people, when they think about being born again, they think, oh, being born again, that's a kind of thing for some people who are really, really bad. That's a kind of experience, an ecstatic experience for some people that's really, really bad. For the ordinary person, they don't need this ecstatic experience of being born again. That's not the case at all. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And this is a review for some of you from last year. And the book of John series at CCC, but, but, but notice who was Nicodemus? Who was Jesus talking to? Verse 1, he was a man of the Pharisees, morally incredibly rigorous, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, politically powerful, well-established, well-educated Pharisee, so a morally superior too. His name is Nicodemus, which means to conquer. His name, the conquering one, probably meaning that he's from a royal family, He's a ruler of the Jews, a political power, and also a moral powerhouse. He's a leader of the Pharisees, right? So you have this stunningly capable person. Like if he were walking around today, he's not just an elder at a church. He's an elder of a church and also the president, right? Like you have two powers represented in one person, political and religious power in one person, Nicodemus, the conquering one. And what's Jesus saying here? Truly, truly, I say to you, Who's he talking to? The morally superior, intellectually established, politically powerful person. He's saying, this Nicodemus, who has come from a well-established family, Jewish identity, morally powerful, he too needs to be born again. So this is of absolute necessity. In other words, it doesn't matter where you've come from, who you are, what your pedigree is. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. Jesus, and notice, it's interesting to me, right? The next chapter is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman who had five husbands, right? He doesn't do that to her. He doesn't talk about, you need to be born again. Who does he talk about about that with? The morally self-righteous person who thinks that they don't need to be born again. That's powerful. In other words, those who deceive themselves into thinking that they are most self-righteous. Jesus is speaking directly into that. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter, implicitly, given the chapters as well, it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan harlot or a rigorous Pharisee, you need to be born again. You need it. So it doesn't matter what kind of walk of life, you need the Holy Spirit for you to actually see the kingdom of God, for you to see it as attractive, okay? Why? What Jesus does in narrative form in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, Paul tells us in more theological propositional terms in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is going to be more of a familiar text to some of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 
you don't have to turn there if it's too um, laborsome for you. But here's what Paul says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And notice, the mind too is included in the flesh, right? You, in other words, what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is, right, in, in narrative form, he's saying, you think you have good moral, familial, educational, political pedigrees, and so you are automatically in the kingdom of God, right? What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Look, those things don't matter. You are spiritually dead, and you need new life. That's what he's saying in Ephesians. And Paul is being explicit here. He's saying the natural man is dead in trespasses and sins, and deadness means your spiritual condition. You have an inability to believe in God. You need new life to be able to believe in God at all. This is how the Christian was before he was a Christian. Left to yourselves, you would have never been able to obey God. That should be pretty astounding to you. In other words, nothing less than a miraculous work of God can make you a Christian. If you've been coming to CCC, that's, that's kind of old hat to you, but just be reminded of that. If you haven't been coming to CCC, just notice that this is something of epic proportions, okay? It is not as if, okay, one implication is this, is there's no such thing as a Christian type. Have you ever walked around, just, just a practical question, have you ever walked around and say to yourself, you know, after church maybe, man, look at that guy. You would never become a Christian. You ever done that? Like scrolling through Instagram, and then this name pops up, it's like, man, that guy will never be in my church. You, have you ever done that? Like silently, you'll never admit it, right? You're never going to be like, hush, hush about it. But you, you, you kind of feel that in your heart, right? But then you see other people, um, other people on Instagram or social media or whatever, and then suddenly you're like, I think just in a couple of months, man, this person's just, he's going to become a Christian. I could feel it. I just, I just sense it, you know, like he doesn't dress like the other guys. And, you, you, you know, I just, there's a Christian type and there's no Christian. There's a, there's a type of person, in other words, that would believe in the gospel. There's a sort of type of person you're just like, that guy's just lost, right? That guy's just, you know, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, just don't touch that guy, right? Um, funny story. Uh, one of you here, and you're going to laugh at this because you know who you are. One of you here were high school classmates with me. I was playing guitar once, and then he walked past me, and he said, Sasadlu. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm not going to tell you who that was. You know who you are. You know, I'm just going to. So that's just an Indonesian slang that means you're so lost, right? Like, like it's a really crude Indonesian way of saying, man, this guy's lost, right? So like, so look, one implication, one implication of this, okay? is that there's no such thing as a Christian type. There's no such thing as the type of person that will become a Christian. Like, you are dead. You had no ability to believe in God. Okay? Just, just notice that. That means, if you're a Christian, and you thought that you were a Christian type, bro, humble yourself. You should be astounded if you're a Christian. But that also means, friends, that you, when you look around, you shouldn't be a cynic. Because you can't say, that person would never believe in God. It gives you hope. It simultaneously humbles you, and it simultaneously gives you hope. So people say the doctrine of total depravity and unconditional election, predestinarianism, it's like so bleak. Dude, it's the only hope you have. And it's the only way you could both be humbled and at the same time have hope 
that your buddy that you've been evangelizing next door or that person on Instagram that you're solemnly judging will be Christian. Nobody is outside of the bounds of God's election, and nobody should be prideful enough to say, of course God chose me. All right? Humble yourself, have hope, don't be a cynic, and also at the same time, don't be prideful. Okay, that's just a pastoral side note. I hope you take that to heart. Now, what is regeneration? What happened to you? If that's the necessity of regeneration, there's no such thing as a Christian type. Everybody starts out in the same plane. Sin levels the ground. Okay, sin levels the ground. Doesn't matter if you're, no matter what background you come from, sin levels the ground. What is regeneration? What happens to you? If that's your spiritual condition, you were dead in your sins, you were spiritually incapable of any step of obedience, any step of faith, any seeing of the kingdom of God as attractive. You had no taste for it, right? What is regeneration? Well, I want to talk about four biblical imageries, four biblical realities to talk about regeneration, okay? And I'm going to camp on the third one because it's, it's literally where the word regeneration comes from in the Bible. So first, as we already saw, it's, it's a down payment. And we don't have to turn to all of these individual passages, but I just want us to see through these four different imageries and realities of Scripture that you're not just given new life. This new life that is within you, it's, it's a rich, there's a rich connotation to it. It's, it's a rich theological new life. There's a lot of meaning behind it, okay? Your regeneration is a down payment. It's a guarantee. This is a word that we get from Ephesians 1 verse 14 where it says, He is the guarantee of our inheritance who will who, who, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And, and the Greek word literally means down payment. It's an economic term, right? If you have the Holy Spirit within you, notice what I, what I said before about your spiritual new life anticipates your resurrection. The first resurrection, your spiritually, anticipates the physical resurrection, right? This is a down payment of that. There's a guarantee of future hope. How do you know you're going to end up in heaven? You have the new life within you. You have, you have, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You have regeneration. So it's a down payment. When you get it, I hope I don't have to explain what a down payment is, right? It's a down payment. Okay. Seal. Ephesians 1, 13. And him also, when he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is, this is a pretty significant term as well, because sealing here is, is kind of like a stamp. A seal is not just, you know, you're, you're, you're sealing something through, you're enclosing it. It's a stamp. If, if you're sealing a letter, especially in the ancient world, with, with a sign or a mark of something, sealed by the emperor or sealed, but this is the decree, this is the guarantee. It, it means that you are his. If a, if a letter was, was marked by the emperor, marked by the king, sealed by the king with a particular stamp, your stamp means that this letter was authorized, it was commissioned by, guaranteed by a particular authority and person. Here's what regeneration means. If you have new life within you, this is not only a down payment of your future hope, but this down payment is also a seal. You are somebody else's. You are not your own. Take comfort in that. Um, the God of the universe has sealed your name forever. You can't lose your salvation. It's nonsense. So new creation, spiritual life here as well, okay? Third, third image, 
third reality I want to I want to talk about. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 8. We don't have to go there again, but it's a passage we've gone through in our sermons many times before, too. Prophesizes the Holy Spirit. And he says that the Spirit will remove your heart of stone and turn into a heart of flesh. Will will turn your dead heart into a new heart. Will give you a new spirit so that you might have life. Oh, wow, it's in the... Nice, good job. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice that your obedience could never have come from you. And that's not just a truth from a hymn. That's straight out of this, right? He himself will cause you to walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. Notice the hope language there too. So Ezekiel 36 says that the work of the Holy Spirit gives you this new life to obey. Notice obedience is not a condition of the Holy Spirit. Obedience is the result of the Holy Spirit. You don't obey and then get the Spirit. Rather, you obey because of the Spirit. That's what Ezekiel 36 is saying. It's it's a new animating principle, a new life principle. Remember TSR's lecture from last night as well. The Spirit hovers over nothingness and makes something new. Paul summarizes it this way in Titus 3.5, which contains the word regeneration. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that word, regeneration, I mentioned the meaning of it, right? You know that the word Genesis is in there, re is in there, so it's re-creation. Um, the Greek is palingenesias, right? It's, it's, it's literally creation again. You were created out of Nothing. Again, there's, there's, you were dead. There's nothing there. You were given you life, right? Here, here's what is amazing. If, if you put these three, just these three first, right? Biblical realities together, you're getting an incredibly rich picture of an already not yet, right? It's, it's a down payment, so it's a guarantee. It's a seal. You're his, right? So you can't lose your salvation. Once you've been given new life, you can't lose new life, right? You, you're born again. You can't lose that. It's not something that is external to you. It's an internal thing, right? And, and you're recreated. Okay, you're a new creation, Paul would say elsewhere. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation, okay? But what does new creation refer to normally in the Bible, in theology? Consummation, right? See, so the Spirit somehow is given to you as a guarantee of your resurrection, the new creation principle, the new heavens and the new earth. It's a guarantee that you'll actually partake in that, right? But Paul is saying that this down payment is so otherworldly. Remember what Jesus said, born from above. Born, what is of the flesh is flesh. What is of the Spirit is spirit. From above, right? It's an intrusion. Paul has the audacity to say, that the power of new creation, when you think of heaven, what do, what do you believe? What, what are the biblical images that you, did you think of? Let's just call, you know, holiness, 
perf perfection, moral purity, never sin again, no temptation. That's one. What else? Huh? You're with Jesus. Perfect fellowship with God. Good. No sin, perfect fellowship with God. What else? No tears. No tears. No more sorrow. No more suffering. Right? No more brokenness. What else? Perfect fellowship among other people, right? Unity and diversity among the nations. So there's real ethnic and cultural diversity, but at the same time, people are not fighting. No superiority, no pride, right? Notice, that's all the characteristics of new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Paul is saying, and he has the audacity to say that that same power lives in you today. You are a new creation. In other words, you are so much, the life that is within you is so much from the next world that when you live in this world, you actually have the ability and the capacity to embody that new world to the world around you. Do you believe that about yourself? The principles of new creation, the very things that will become climactically glorified in the final new heavens and the new earth is already principally so within you that Paul is saying you are today a new creation. You, you really are enjoying the intrusion of the Holy Spirit from the new world internally. So that when the world looks at the church, they are supposed to feel a little bit alienated because they're looking in and they're saying, what kind of love is this? What kind of people is this? What kind of discipleship is this? What kind of joy is this? What kind of suffering so well is this? How can you have this much hope? They're supposed to be looking in and saying, you are a new, you are a part of a new creation. You are a world within a world, a culture within a culture, a city within a city, right? That's what happened to you. Such that water is also another sign. You are so washed by the Spirit of God that legally you are in God's sight perfectly clean. So live like it. So it's, it's, it's interesting that, that all of Paul's imperatives, all of Paul's commands in all of his letters is kind of circular, right? You were dead and now you were alive, so put to death, the old man. I thought you were dead. You are alive, so put to life the deeds of the new man, right? You, you are children of light, so walk as children of light. In other words, Paul's commands are always to the tone of become who you already are. Given the fact that you're enjoying the new creational principles which intruded into your life, which is a promise and a down payment of the future life, live as you ought to be. Because this is who you are on the inside. We know that. You are no longer identified with your sin. Oh, Christian. Okay. That should be of astounding encouragement to you. That's why Paul could say you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's a real transference of eschatological power, of new creational power within you. You are citizens of the new creation, living in a broken world. 
Okay. So, let me now tease TSR's fourth session. Can I do that? Tez, I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> it's going to bleed into this. What are some of the signs? What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And Tazar's going to talk about this tomorrow a little bit more clearly. But here are at least three things that I want to I want to just mention, right? I just want us to, to note. You got to know God. You got to have you, not just doctrine, but like knowledge of God, which is eternal life. John 17, verse 3. You got to know God. Know him as he truly is, biblically. Not just as a projection of yourself, right? He's not you. So he'll contradict you. But know this God. Have a fellowship with him. Know him in, in the context of the church. You are his body. He is your head. And then, this is going to be key. There should be in your life a definitive breach with sin and some fruits of obedience to the law of God. Remember Ezekiel 36. Remember, you are part of a new creation. There has to be fruit of the Holy Spirit within you. Growth and self-control. Growth and peace. Growth and joy. Growth and obedience such that no matter how small, there's a real breach between sin in your past life and who you are now. There has to be that definitive breach. Now, I want us to not misunderstand what I'm saying here. This, we can spend a lot of time in this second one, right? But the text that is behind this is Romans chapter 6, which you could read in your own later. You were dead in Christ, made alive by the Holy Spirit, right? There's a breach with sin. You're no longer, in the strict sense of the word, a sinner. You might sin, but you're no longer identified with your sin. There's a real fruit of obedience, okay? How, here's how you measure sanctification. One of the best books on this is by David Paulison, What is Sanctification? Um, little 90-page book. It's brilliant. Just grab it on Kindle. You could read it in a day. So he talks about it this way, okay? Sanctification is not measured by distance or speed, but by direction. Sanctification is not measured by distance or speed, but by direction. So you can't, because you, the moment I say something like definitive breach with sin and breach of obedience, the moment I say that, you're already thinking like, how many sins that I've done this past week? How many times have I read the Bible? How many Christians have I fellowshiped with? How many non-Christians did I evangelize? Right? What are you doing there? You're measuring, not direction, you're measuring speed. Like how many, how many things have I done? How, at what rate, right? And then you're thinking about two years ago, who was I, you know, you're, you're thinking all these sort of things. That could be very, very, very discouraging. Or if it's too encouraging to you, then humble yourself a little bit. <laughs> because, because, because you will experience seasons where you're going to feel like you just totally messed up. You messed up big time, you know. And you're going to think, am I truly a Christian? But notice, if you have any measure of direction, notice, not speed, not distance, any measure of direction, any seed of repentance in you, that's a sign of new life. A lot of people ask me, right? I mean, how do you know you're chosen by God? And I'm really scared I'm not chosen by God. If you're scared that you're not chosen by God, you're probably chosen by God. Because the non-believer doesn't care. It's true. You knew that in your own life before you were a Christian? You talked to your unbelieving friend? You told him, hey man, you want to come to Bible study? You're like, you get a blank stare. There's just, if you're, but you're feeling, Lord, I want to be with you. I'm really scared that you're not with me, that you haven't chosen me. 
That's a sign of the fear of the Lord, which, again, can only come by the Holy Spirit. So don't compare yourself in terms of speed and, 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 and distance with others, other Christians. Don't do that, right? Which be, could be very encouraging and discouraging. But rather, think about direction. If there's any seed of repentance in your life, take heart, oh Christian. Third, you will be increasingly self-forgetful and you will more and more behold Christ. One of the reasons why I don't want to just get us to think about our fruits of, dis- of obedience or our sins, right? Because you get introspective really quickly. The moment I talk about growth, you get introspective really deeply, right? How many people did I meet? Uh, how am I sitting in this way? How come I'm still struggling in this way, but this guy's not struggling in this way? Uh, and, you know, you're, you're things, you just get kind of paralyzed. And notice, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. Getting paralyzed and getting fixated on your list of achievements or your list of failures is a sign of the flesh, not of the Holy Spirit. Because why? Who is the Holy Spirit pointing you to? The work of Jesus Christ. Such that there's a real sense in which you don't even feel like you're growing, but you're growing. There's a real sense in which when you're growing, you're not thinking about it very much. You're not thinking about yourself very much. You notice that about yourself? You notice that when you're struggling the most, it's the most the time when you're thinking about yourself the most. But rather, you would be focusing your, your life and your views on Christ, right? Why do we never talk about the Holy Spirit? Because his job is not to get you to think about how many ways he's caused you to obey. His job is to point you away from yourself and to Christ Jesus. So if there's a definitive breach with sin, you're walking in the right direction. It doesn't matter how slow, it doesn't matter how, how long it takes you. Look, you walking in the right direction, that's good. And when you struggle with introspection, stop thinking about the Spirit and your obedience. Start thinking about Christ. And that's when you ironically know when the Holy Spirit is most present, most at work, so to speak. All right? Let me now open it up with Q&A. Steve. That was fast, man. Thanks uh, for the talk. So, um, you know, when you see uh, Titus 3, verse 5, you know, mentioned of, like, we're saved, like, you know, by grace, not by works. And the same thing says, 